Well, please uh, turn back in the church Bibles to Mark 8. Well, in a Bible, actually, Mark 8 will do. It's page uh, 1012 in the church Bibles. Mark chapter 8. There was a a great piece in the Times recently from the paper's Japanese uh, correspondent. Uh, It said this, the the stage was set, the lights went down, and in a suburban Japanese primary school, everyone prepared to enjoy a performance of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. The only snag was that the entire cast was playing the part of Snow White. Twenty-five Snow Whites and not a dwarf in sight. How so? Well, because as the paper goes on to explain, because of an emerging class of monster parents. Monster parents who, quote, after a relentless campaign of bullying, hectoring and nuisance phone calls, cowed the teachers into submission, forcing the school to admit to the injustice of selecting just one girl to play the title role. 25 Snow Whites and not a single dwarf. See, of course, as TV's Apprentice has made clear, shameless self-promotion is the name of the game. Or in the words of the infamous Burger King advert, you have the right to have what you want exactly when you want it. Because on the menu of life, you are today's special. (laughs) And tomorrow's. And the day after that, and well, you get the point. Yes, that's right, we may be the king, but you, my friend, are the almighty ruler. All of which sits rather uneasily with Jesus' uncomfortably blunt words in verse 34. Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. See, Jesus says, save your life and you'll lose it. Lose your life and you'll save it. Life isn't about self-promotion and success. It is, according to Jesus, about self-denial and suffering. Indeed, Jesus says, if you see life through the lens of self, you might gain the whole world, but in the end you will forfeit your very soul. But if you see life through the lens of the Saviour, well, then you'll discover what life really is. For those who follow God's suffering king find their culpable shame turned into undeserved glory. Now, of course, Jesus' uncompromising demands leave many unbelievers irritated and many believers hesitant. Now, how can Jesus say these kind of things? How can he make these sort of demands? Who does he think he is to say these kind of things? 
Now, many of us find Jesus' spiritual insights inspiring, and I guess at least some of his moral insights helpful. But his command to follow him such that it really costs something, that it costs our comfort, our reputation, even our life itself, you just feel it's just a bit too much. Unbelievers see it as an unhealthy fanaticism. And isn't the reality that many of us who are believers see such unwavering commitment as the optional extra mile for hardcore missionaries? There's a great uh, section in Nick Hornby's novel, How to Be Good, when one of the main characters announces to the utter astonishment of her family that she wants to go to church. Her husband says, what are you looking for? Relishing her discomfort. And she says, well, I, I just want to sit back and not join in. Well, what do you want to go for if you don't want to join in? What's the point of that? I just want to listen. See, it's the lack of conviction I want. I was hoping for a, a mild, doubtful, liberal, possibly youngish woman who would give a sermon about, say, asylum seekers and economic migrants or, or maybe the national lottery and greed and then apologize for bringing up the subject of God. See, that's what she wants, just to listen. Lack of conviction. Striking, isn't it? She wants not to be a follower of Christ, but just a passenger. She doesn't want conviction forming because that might actually lead her to do something. And yet Jesus seems to say that it's strong conviction that the very thing his followers do need. You have to have strong conviction, don't you? To follow Jesus when he says, come, lose your life for me and the gospel. But you see, none of Jesus' words make any sense unless you understand who he really is. And that's the unsettling challenge of Mark 8. Because the unsettling thing about this chapter is that even those who appear to have a clear understanding of who Jesus is don't necessarily understand who he is at all. See, the question that's been running through the whole of the first half of Mark's gospel is simple but profound, and it's this. Who is this man? Who is this man who forgives sins and heals sickness and conquers demons and commands creation? Who is this man? And so the turning point in the gospel comes when Jesus asks the key question at the end of verse 27. He says to the disciples, who do people say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. For then as now, people had all sorts of ideas about who this Jesus really was. But after Jesus' general question, he asks a follow-on question of Peter. And actually of us as readers, a more direct, a more unsettling question, not who do people say I am? But, verse 29, who do you say I am? 
you can't forever speak about Jesus in the abstract. There comes a point when you actually have to own a position for yourself. And of course, the astonishing thing is that Peter actually sees who Jesus is. That he is more than a teacher. That he's more than a a miracle worker, more than a prophet. Peter sees that Jesus is God's promised king, the one who has come to put the world right again. Verse 29, Peter answered, You are the Christ. Astonishing. And yet, although Peter understands that Jesus is the Christ, God's promised king, he, he doesn't really understand what that means. See, Peter was like the man that Jesus heals of blindness in verses 22 to 26. For Peter sees, but he doesn't see. So back in verse 23, you remember Jesus opens the blind man's eyes such that he he sees people looking like trees walking around. But actually, it was only when Jesus touched the man's eyes for a second time that the man's eyes were truly open, verse 25, that he saw everything clearly. And so it was for Peter. See, on the one hand, there's Peter's remarkable confession, verse 29, that you are more than a teacher, you are more than a miracle worker, more than a prophet, you are God's promised king, come to put the world right. But then Jesus begins to teach what kind of king he is and that proves more than a little problematic for Peter verse 31 Jesus began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be be rejected by the elders chief priests and teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after three days rise again Now, for Peter, such a view of God's promised king was incomprehensible. Who ever heard of a conquering king that suffered and died at the hands of the very people who should have welcomed him? And so, verse 32, Peter begins to rebuke Jesus. See, such is the sinfulness of the human heart, we can profess faith and betray rebellion in almost the same breath. Such is the sinfulness of the human heart, we can profess faith and betray rebellion in almost the same breath. You see, we may profess that Jesus is king, but invariably, unbelief makes him a king of our own making, a king to suit us. A king who ignores or excuses our sin rather than condemning it. A few months back I was uh, speaking at a lunchtime event on a university campus uh, where people invite their friends who are not Christians. It was on the subject of um, science and Christianity. It was quite a robust event. Uh, The questions were very forthright. I thought I got a good roasting. But afterwards a number of guys came to talk to me. And one lad came up to talk to me. And um, I wasn't quite sure where he he stood really initially because on the one hand he was criticising me and on the other hand he was actually criticising some of the very hostile atheists who were also criticising me. It was, you know, there was lots of criticism going on. And um, 
At one point in the, the conversation, we'd been talking about Christ and his demands, and he said something very revealing. He said, my problem is, I think that I want God to be the way I think he should be, because then it doesn't matter if I don't believe in him. See, I think that's my problem. I want God to be like this because then it doesn't matter if I don't believe in him. I think such honest self-awareness is rare, but actually I think the problem is all too common. Even for those of us who are believers. Is it not true that we select out the bits of Jesus' teaching that we like and discard or ignore the bits that we don't? For we are happy when it costs us little or nothing to obey. But when there's a challenge, well, we rationalize, we we relativize Jesus' teaching, lest we actually have to take it seriously. So you see here, Peter professes faith and betrays rebellion in almost the same breath. He says that Jesus is God's promised king, but he doesn't really understand what that means. And so Jesus' response is uncompromising and blunt, verse 33. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Now I imagine that many of us here feel a little uncomfortable with Jesus' response here. It's just not the sort of thing we expect Jesus to say, is it? Feels just a little over the top. Bit of an overreaction. And yet I suspect such an assessment betrays the fact that we see, but we don't really see who Jesus is. See, we profess some sort of recognition of Jesus as God's king, but the attitude of our hearts demonstrates a rebellion no less serious than Peter's. Jesus is God's promised king. But we still think that we know best about who he is and what it means to follow him. See, Jesus delivers a loving rebuke about matters of eternal consequence and we think he's having an off day. See, the really shocking thing about Mark 8 is is not actually Jesus' reaction to Peter's rebuke. The really shocking thing about Mark 8 is the fact that people can even acknowledge that Jesus is God's king and be guilty of a blindness so serious it's satanic. That's what's really shocking about Mark 8. And so once again, Jesus opens the eyes of those who see but don't see. For you only really acknowledge Jesus as God's king when you understand two things. Number one, that the Christ must suffer. And number two, that the disciple must follow. You see, firstly, you have to understand that the Christ must suffer. Jesus began to teach them, verse 31, that the Son of Man must suffer many things. So why is it that God's promised King must suffer? Why? Well, you see, from a human perspective, Jesus must suffer because the world's rejection of him is just universal. How could Jesus experience anything other than suffering and death? 
when he was rejected by everybody in the religious establishment, by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. He was even rejected by his own friends, as here. Even the very people you might have expected to welcome God's king reject him. And so the Son of Man must suffer. As John puts it at the beginning of his gospel, Jesus was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. You see, Jesus suffered. He had to suffer because the whole world rejected him. And yet actually Jesus' words here suggest a different perspective on his own suffering and death. For here we see not so much the culpability of human sin, but the breathtaking sacrifice of divine love. You see, the Son of Man must suffer because here is the plan of God for the salvation of the world. It was, as Isaiah put it, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. That's why the Son of Man must suffer. As John Stott put it, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. See, the cross of Christ is both our terrible indictment and the Lord's wonderful salvation. For here at the cross we see our shameful defiance of God unmasked and God's glorious plan of salvation revealed. See, the one who must suffer, the one who must suffer and die is the one who must, after three days, rise again. For in God's perfect plan of salvation, suffering and death give way to victory and vindication for this promised king. One of Rembrandt's most striking paintings, I think, is a, is a picture of Christ being lifted up onto the cross. And in the centre of the picture, alongside the, the sort of uh, straining figure of a Roman soldier who is levering the cross into the ground, just next to the Roman soldier, there is the figure of Rembrandt himself. Rembrandt paints himself into the picture there with artist Berry and he too holds the cross and lifts it into place. Just behind those figures out of the background, from the darkness, the viewer meets the gaze of a lone figure whose eyes question. They question and accuse and remind us that it was not just Rembrandt's sin that crucified Christ but it is our own too you see you only really understand what it means for Jesus to be God's promised king you only really understand that when you understand that he had to suffer for you As Isaiah put it, hundreds of years before the coming of God's promised king, he was pierced for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And you see, once you see that, once you see that the Christ must suffer and die, then you understand that the disciple must follow. Understand that the Christ must suffer for you and then you understand that the disciple must follow, denying self and taking up the cross. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor executed by the Nazis, put it, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come die. The Christ must suffer, but the disciple must follow. You see, Jesus goes to the cross first. He has to. For it is only at the cross that he can deal with my sin and satisfy God's justice. But where the Saviour leads, the disciple follows. It's interesting in this section of Mark that this section about following Christ ends with blind Bartimaeus at the end of chapter 10. See, Mark tells his readers that Bartimaeus is healed of his blindness and then he does the thing that singularly no one else and the gospel has done to this point. What does Bartimaeus do? He follows Jesus on the road. On the road where? To Jerusalem. To the cross. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come die. And yet the reality for me, and I suspect for you, is that I am at best a reluctant follower. Now in spite of Jesus' warnings, I I don't want to die. I want to live. And I want so often to live my way and not God's. For sometimes to me at least self-indulgence and and self-promotion seem much more attractive than self-denial. And to take up the cross, well, it's, it's far easier to accept that when it's reduced to some sort of sentimental metaphor about life's minor inconveniences. And so Jesus' words still echo down the centuries. Verse 35, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If if anyone is ashamed of me, and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. The Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. See, as Tim Keller puts it, my temptation is always to take good things and make them ultimate things. My temptation is always to take good things and make them ultimate things. So I can take the good things of life, like a career, and family, and relationships, and and money, and even Christian service. I can take the good things of life, and I can make them ultimate things. And through these things, it seems as if I can gain the whole world. 
I can gain reputation, successful children, material benefits, the praise of my home group because I'm such a godly and good Bible study leader. And yet Jesus asks, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? You want to save your life? Then you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for Christ and the gospel, you will save it. And I suspect that I'm like you in this, that I I struggle with the familiarity of these words. And if the familiarity of these words hasn't dulled their power, then the sinfulness of my own heart often dodges their uncompromising challenge. For where I wonder in my own life is the evidence of self-denial. Now where in my relationships, in how I spend my money, in how I use my time, in how I serve the church, in what sense if any do I or am I willing to suffer for Christ? Is it really so much to ask that I will bear the disapproval and mockery of work colleagues and friends for publicly owning the name of Christ? Is it really so much when believers throughout the world, even today, will face persecution and even death for being Christian? See, my problem is like Peter's problem. I can profess faith and betray rebellion in almost the same breath. So I can say, I can sing that Jesus is God's promised king and yet deny its truth in practice. But Jesus is God's suffering king. And just as the Christ must suffer, along the same road the disciple must follow. You know that astonishing verse in Philippians where Paul says it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him but also to suffer for him. See, I want that wonderful gift of God that I might believe in Christ. What an astonishing gift that God gives me in following the suffering Messiah that it has been granted to me not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for him. I suspect that part of my hesitation to suffer for Christ and the gospel is because I fear maybe deep down that this life is it. That there's nothing more. Now sometimes I think it's easy to live your life like you're on some sort of mad supermarket dash. Do you know those kind of prizes that people used to win? Like 10 minutes to blitz around a supermarket and throw everything into the trolley that you can possibly do before the buzzer goes. And sometimes life feels a bit like that, doesn't it? Three score years and ten, herring up and down the aisles of life, trying to do as much, get as much, and hang on to as much as you can, because when the buzzer of life sounds, that's it. But actually, such thinking reveals that I don't really understand what God has done and what God has promised he will do through Christ. Paul puts it like this in Romans, he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? 
in the oft-quoted but very challenging words of the martyred missionary Jim Elliot. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. For you see, Jesus said and still says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. See, I know that for some people here in the congregation this evening, you hear Jesus' words in the midst of great difficulties. You are already feeling the pressures of life, for work is unrelenting and and family life is stressful and finances are stretched or school is difficult or health is uncertain. You actually feel you're in a very bad place at the moment And Jesus' challenge actually feels like it's just going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back. That's what it feels like. How can Jesus call you to lose your life when you barely feel like you've got much of a life to lose at the moment? I think all of us imagine that Jesus' call to radical discipleship would be far better for us when we're in a really good place. Now, when work is under control when relationships are less strained, when our health is robust, then we'd be in a position to lose our life for Christ. Perhaps we imagine the great moving sermon, singing a rousing hymn to finish and stepping out into another week with renewed zeal, thinking, yes, take my life, Lord, and let it be. But of course the reality is that the Bible is much more honest and much more real than we are. And the good news is that wherever we are, in a good place or a difficult place, we need to pray at the beginning of this week with all its pressures, pressures that are known to us and unknown. We need to pray, what? First and foremost, that the Lord would open our eyes so that we would really see who Jesus is. For it is only a clear vision of Jesus' greatness and his glory, and the wonder of his undeserved love on the cross. It is only as we see Jesus that we will be strengthened to follow him and to count the cost now. In the midst of whatever we are facing. And so, as we go into this week, we remember that the Christ must suffer. And the disciple must follow. And let us, as the writer of Hebrews put it, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Well, let's pray, shall we?
Father, we do pray that you would so work in us that you would open blind eyes to see the wonder of the Lord Jesus, your promised King, who came to bear my sin that I might live for him. Help us, we pray, Heavenly Father, by the power of your Spirit, to be those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ with all its costs in the days and weeks and months and God-willing years that lie ahead. And we ask it for your name's sake. Amen.